morning. I do pray you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's going to be a whirlwind between now and, and the end of the year. This is personally my favorite time of the year. I love um, Christmas. I love the Christmas music. I love everything about it, everything that's going on between now and, and the new year. Most of all, I'm thankful for Jesus. Amen. I want you if, you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and just hold it for one second before we read it. Acts 17, 16. Jesus said, and we talked about it last week, that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. And we talked about that last week. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church of Jesus Christ and the church that he is building upon himself. He is that rock, as we heard in Sunday school this morning. But look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. This city of Athens was wholly given to idolatry, wholly or completely given over to idolatry. And it's probably a lot like uh, America today, I would think. And it doesn't just mean there was a lot of idols or that there were some idolatrous people there. He says it was wholly given to idols, given to idolatry, the word of God says, and it, it literally means full of idols. And in fact, there was no city in the world that has many idols as Athens did, okay? Athens, Greece, with the Greek mythology and all that goes with it, and then the Roman mythology which followed. Athens would have been the hub or the center of all of this. And here, God has sent his man to preach the gospel. And he disputed with them daily in the marketplaces that Jesus was Christ, that he died and rose again. And people mocked him and ridiculed him here in Athens. But it says here in that verse that we read, verse 16, that Paul's spirit was stirred with them, within him. That literally means he was ex exasperated, exasperated because the city was given over fully to idolatry. It means he was grieved. He was angered. Okay, so this bothered Paul greatly. He wasn't just like uh, a little bit perturbed by it. It means he was totally exasperated beyond measure. That's what it says when you study the world, uh, the word. He was stirred. His spirit was stirred within him. He was grieved because the city was fully given over uh, to this idolatry. And so God's man was angered. He was sent in there by the Lord. Paul didn't just go wherever he felt like going. He was led by the Spirit of God where he went. Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and the deep, different people he traveled with at different times, God sent him. This was the building of his church like we talked about last week. We're to continue the thought this week. This is God's way. It's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he'll send his men, in this case we're talking about the Apostle Paul, right into the very gates of hell. Right into the, to challenge these, the, the powers of darkness and so, so forth. And so God sent his man there to go in that place. Not just have a prayer meeting outside of town somewhere. He sent him right into the midst of it. And that's where he went. And that's where God sent him. And he was angered. And I began to write down some things. What was he angry at? Paul's was, spirit was stirred. He was exasperated. He was grieved beyond measure. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, idolatry, he was angry at the power of false religion to deceive men. He was angry at that. He was mad that men would be deceived by a false god or idol or idolatry. He was angry at men's devotion to such powerless gods. And he says that when he... Uh, when he walked into to town, when he was preaching on Mars Hill a little bit after this, he says, For I passed by and beheld, and beheld, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God who you, whom you ignorantly worshipped. He was mad about this. Coming into town, there's devotion after devotion. Devotion is actually an, act, an object of worship. Men worship these devotions. They had a God for everything. 
had a God for everything, an idol for everything. And there was a devotion or an altar, which is a place of sacrifice to the unknown God. That's what they wrote on it. They had the other gods that they named, and this was to the unknown God. And Paul used that as a platform to preach the living God. Uh, by that, by that, he says, I'm here to declare him to you. But he was angry at men's devotion to powerless gods. And that's what idols are. They have no power. It says all through the Bible they are, they are literally forbidden. In the New Testament, he says, wherefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. We're told that. It's all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, because idolatry is all through the Bible. And even though we might not bow down to a, a golden calf, people, people have idols. Their children could be their idol. Their job could be their idol. Their wealth could be their idol. Their, their uh, standing among men could be their idol. They could be their own idols, whatever it may be. But he was angry at this. He was angry at the wealth that was given towards this devotion because there was temples built expensive buildings and temples built to worship these idols, these false gods. He was angry at the devotion and worship that should have been given to God that was given to idols. Men created in the image of God that should know God and worship the Lord who made them happily. Amen? Given to dumb things that they made with their own hands. They can't speak. They can't deliver. They can't rescue Right? Didn't Elijah, when he, called, when he was calling down the fire from heaven and challenged the gods of Baal and says, call on Baal. He told those false prophets of Baal, maybe, he, maybe he's sleeping. He was, maybe, he's, maybe he's off on a journey right now and he's not hearing you. Keep calling a little bit louder. Why is he ridiculing? Because there's pointless. Idols are pointless. They're, they're vain. They have no uh, power to deliver, to taste, to smell, to hear, to see, to help, to love. Or anything else. And he's angry of the worldly wise. Because Athens would have been the poster child for the worldly wise. The philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans that were there. And they sat around. And all the visitors that came to downtown. All they wanted to do day and night was to tell or, or hear something new. Tell me something I haven't heard before. Scratch my itching ear with something philosophical. Something of a, some deity. You know, this is what they did all the time. And he was angry at these intellectuals, these worldly wise philosophers that actually mocked the resurrection of the Son of God. They mocked it. He was angry. Okay? He was angry. And first and lastly, he was angry because men who were literally within a heartbeat of hell could just eat, drink, and be merry as though nothing was wrong. Would you say it's pretty similar to our country today? To the world today, with men are literally within a heartbeat of hell. The Bible says the wrath of God before we were saved abode upon us. The wrath of God was hanging over us. That we we were, the wrath of God was just only thing keeping it away is the mercy of God. That He gave us another breath to turn to Christ. Another breath in us to turn to Jesus Christ, because we're children of wrath by nature. The Bible says we were by nature the children of wrath. And so he was angry at this. And I would say, as I was studying this and reading this, that this was a righteous anger. This was a just anger. He didn't lose control and get mad because somebody offended him personally. I think most of the time we get angry when we're hurt. We're slighted. People overlook us. People mock us. People cut us off in traffic. We take it personally. Or we can rise up real quickly and this anger comes over us. That's not a righteous anger. A righteous anger is one where we're with a just cause, where, where God's been offended, or sin is abounding, or men are blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ, or something like this. And I would say, and I include myself totally in this, as blood-bought saints of God, we need a, a Holy Ghost dose of this anger, this righteous anger, this just anger. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that be angry and sin not. So you can be, the Bible tells us that, we can be angry and yet not sin. Anger is not a sin. It's what are we getting angry at and what do we do with that anger? If it's all about me and I've been hurt and they overlooked me and passed me by and so forth, then it's just I'm full of self. I need to die to that. We spent about a year studying the cross, right, and death to, to ourselves and so forth. 
But there is a just anger. We see it in the Lord Jesus when he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. It's just a temporary thing, but it was, it was symbolic. and It was real. It was genuine, the anger that was in him. But he didn't lose control. He sat down and made a whip. Have you ever thought about that? He sat outside of town and made a whip, however long that took. And then he went in. It was calculated. He knew what he was doing. And in that anger, in a Holy Ghost, just, Holy Ghost zeal that, uh, that it consumed him, he drove out the money changers and them that bought and sold doves and says, you've made my father's house, which should be a house of prayer, a den of thieves. So what was he angry about? He was angry for his father's name, for, for devotion and worship that should have been holy and just and right and genuine and sincere that was not. It had been made a mockery, and he was angry about this. And so I believe that God would have us to, I know he would, to have a Holy Ghost anger against things that are not of God, against sin, against the devil. And I believe that this would cause us and stir us more to have a burden for the lost more as well. I believe that they work together. Because Paul saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He was stirred in his spirit. He was grieved beyond measure, exasperated in anger beyond measure. And yet he kept preaching the gospel. He went to them. Okay, he didn't say, well, I'm, these people are a bunch of idolaters. I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, everybody's lost. Every, they may not, might not all be idolaters, but everybody's lost and needs a Savior. He was sent, just like Jesus, to seek and save the lost. And he was, Paul, he was the Lord's ambassador, as we all are. I want to give a quote from Leonard Ravenhill here. He says, the world will break under the load of his own sin unless it breaks in repentance. The world will not break in repentance unless the church breaks in tears over the condition of a lost world. This is his quote. I know it's a man, but I, I, I agree with this quote. I'm going to read it again. The world will break under it the load of its own sin unless it breaks in repentance. That's what we need in this country. We don't just need a better president or better this or that. Those are fruits. That, to me, is evidence of a blessed land when you have good people in those positions. We need repentance in, in salvation. The world will not break in repentance unless the church, that's where it starts, right? Judgment begins at the house of God. Any revival is going to begin with the believers. The revival doesn't begin with the lost people. It begins with the church being the church. It begins with the church living in such a way that the gates of hell don't prevail against the, the Lord's church. The world will not break in repentance unless the church breaks in tears over the condition of a lost world. A lost world is, a lo is lost people. It's lost individuals that God created in his own image and knows the very hairs of their head, their numbers, and the days that, of their breath and how long they're going to live on the earth. It's people. It's people that you know by name. They don't know Jesus. And we don't break in, for the most part, we don't break in tears over the condition of lost men as we should. I don't, as I should. We ought to care. We ought to be angry like Paul was. Men were selling their souls for naught. They were selling their souls for nothing. Amen. To vain idols. I want to read this from Isaiah 55. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah to, to the people of Israel, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. You know what they were doing? They were spending. He's saying, why do you spend your time, effort, energy, money, thoughts, pursuits, everything about what's, on what's vanity, and it's not going to prosper? You spend money like you're buying bread, but it's not going to satisfy you. You spend money for this as though it's going to satisfy your longing heart and your soul, and it's not. We heard about it this morning in Sunday school. The only thing that's going to satisfy is going to be the living waters of the Lord, the presence of God in our lives, the forgiveness of the Lord, the new life that he gives us. Jesus did tell the woman at the well, you drink of this water from Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But he that drinks the water that I give will spring up in him a well of life of everlasting life, and he'll never thirst again. Why? Because he satisfies. He satisfies. But men are, we ought to be angry that men are selling their souls out for what 
doesn't satisfy and not going to satisfy. I'm kind of tying this message in with last week when we talked about the rock. Jesus said, Thou art, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, or, or Petros, which is a small portion of a stone, uh, something that broke off of a stone. I'm calling you Simon, I'm calling you Peter. Okay, a little stone or fragment of a rock. And upon this rock, not Petros, but Petra, an immovable stone, something vast, something massive. And upon this rock, this immovable stone, I will build my church. And he goes on to say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are not going to overcome Christ's church. I just want to start with Paul's example in Athens and then on Mars Hill, where he's literally storming the gates of hell. Jesus Christ is both the builder or the architect. He says, I will build my church, right? He is the builder. He is also the chief cornerstone upon which is built. He is both the builder and the foundation of his church. And he makes a promise or a proclamation that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They won't literally overcome it is what that means against his church. And so the gates of hell is a phrase that's used in the Bible or something similar to it. Hell here being Hades. And it literally means uh, it's referring to like a, a phrase speaking of Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom. It, it could, uh, the, the term gates of death are used in the Bible and the gates of the grave. And it's speaking of Satan and his power is not going to overcome the Lord's church. But when I, the more I've studied, there's another meaning I would say an additional meeting to just the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the Lord's church. The thought is, in the Lord's promise, is that it, the picture is that, that Christ's church is actually on the offensive. You think about it, when, when you think about the phrase, gates are used for defense, right? You have gates of the city, gates of a building, gates of your house, your, your yard, fortress, there's gates to prevent the enemy from coming in, and we want them to be strong, and we need gates, amen, in our lives and so forth. But gates are not used to go on the attack. Gates are in a defensive weapon. And so the imagery here in, the, in the Christ's statement that I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. They shall not prevail against the gates of hell. It, literally, the picture is that the church is on the attack against the gates of hell on the offensive, taking light to the darkness, taking Christ to people that don't know Christ, and that is storming the very gates of hell. Don't ever forget, the Bible tells us that the whole world, so just picture the whole world full of people, lies in the embrace of the wicked one. That's kind of a, a sobering thought, isn't it? It does not mean that everybody in the world is lost, because they're saved people. We're sitting right here. It does not mean that everybody that is lost, is demon-possessed. It means that they're lost in their minds at the current time. Their foolish hearts are darkened, the Bible talks about. Their minds are blinded. They don't understand. Maybe they've never heard. Maybe they've heard and rejected. Maybe they've heard and they've just kind of kicked the can down the road and said, I don't want to think about it right now. But everybody that's lost is lost. And the whole world, not us, we're in the Father's hands, amen? But the whole world lies in the embrace of the wicked one. They're just kind of settled down into this lost condition. And whether they're idolaters or not, whether they're just uh, living life like a good old boy, you know, um, they're lost. And we are called to take the light into the darkness. That is what we're called to do. And the gate, we're promised that the gates of hell will not overcome the Lord's church as we go out. Now, if we're not part of the church, not born again, we just go out and, and try something. I'll try to do this in Jesus' name. We saw how that went for the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They watched Paul cast out demons. Paul, who knows the Lord and filled with the Holy Ghost and called by the Lord, they watched him cast out demons probably multiple times. And they said, we're going to try this. So they go to a demon-possessed man and say, we adjure you. That means we like beg you, we implore you by the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches. Come out of this man. And the man in whom the demons was leapt upon them and overcame them all, all seven of them, because it's a supernatural force they weren't ready for, and overcame them. And they ran out naked and afraid. He must have torn their clothes up and everything else and, and ran out. 
And they said, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? The demons, not the man, the demons in the man. We're not part of that church, then the gates of hell can easily overcome us. We're already part of that kingdom. Even if we think we're going out to serve the Lord, if you're not born again, you're not born again. But if we are, no matter how weak or frail we may seem to be or appear to be, from what I hear, all historians say Paul was nothing impressive in his natural sense, in the sense of just his physical stature, a big booming voice or anything like that. We don't know that he had any of that. The Corinthian church said his speech is contemptible and his, his physical appearance is weak. Uh, and yet here's a man we talk about probably other than Jesus more than anybody in the Bible. And because the Lord used him so greatly, but it's not us, it's the Lord in us. That's the church that's not going to be overcome. And not only not going to be overcome as we sit back in our four walls and say the devil's coming against us, let's build up gates. We, we do need to have that. We need to have the protection of doctrine and, and, and so forth and good pastors and all of that. But the, the picture, again, is that we go on the offensive and gates, the gates of hell, when we storm it, like Paul at Athens, given holy to idolatry, is not going to overcome Paul or whoever the Lord sent there. It's not just Paul. He was a man of flesh and blood that needed a savior just like we do. But uh, the church is to be on the offensive. And Paul was sent right in the midst of all these idols. Amen. And aggressively to attack by snatching, you would say, victims out of the darkness and putting them into the glorious light of the Lord. If you're still in Acts 17, I want you to read with me. Uh, we're just skip several verses. Now, this follows what we were reading. Read verse 19 with me. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. So they bring him to this famous forum on Mars Hill where it was the who's who that came and got up in that pulpit or podium and addressed all the philosophers and all the people that were there. Who but the Lord could orchestrate that? Before this, he was in the marketplaces disputing with the people that Jesus was Lord and that he died and rose again. Remember, every time we get to the resurrection, that's when they would really start mocking. They, they really opposed the resurrection. That means we need to really fight for people to believe the resurrection. Because that's where devil, the devil is wanting one of the things he wants to oppose more than any. So they bring him up in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. So is he pulling punches? Is he hedging himself a little bit and saying, Well, this could be a hostile crowd. I better watch it. I want to win them over and get them to like me first. I think a lot of times that's the philosophy of modern-day evangelism. We just want to be their buddies. If they're a bunch of bikers with long beards and ride Harleys, I'm going to dress like a biker with a long beard and smell bad and ride a Harley. I'm going to go drive up to them and hold a beer in my hand, and maybe I can start talking to them about Jesus. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Bring them the gospel. Whether they're riding a Harley or whether they're uh, living in this neighborhood over here that we went and shared the gospel, whether they're a fellow physician, you know, wh whatever they are. Paul says, I became thing, all, men, all things to all men. That doesn't mean he got into their sin or their lifestyle. Maybe you could relate to them with where they were. If they're a child, you know, you might use different language than you would to, to a Ph.D. at the university. But you, you still, we have to bring the gospel. And so Paul starts off by saying his first words, you men of Athens, I, I perceive in all things you're too superstitious. He's not, he's not giving them a compliment. Thanks for having me here today. You know, uh, welcome. I just want to share a few thoughts with you uh, Athenians today. Uh, he, he starts off by saying you're too super, superstitious. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance. He told them they were ignorant of the true God. Times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to do what? Repent. Not go on a spiritual quest, not go on a spiritual journey, not to go home and sleep on it and see what you think by tomorrow because you might die today. Now is the time of salvation, right? He's bringing the gospel, the whole thing to them. It says, now the Lord commands every man everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has appointed a day 
in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. There's the resurrection again. That's where they begin to mock again and ridicule and so forth. Uh, this to me is just a, such a spiritual picture of, of the church of Jesus Christ going into the gates of hell. There's so many in the Bible. There's many in, in our days and in our lives. But that's a good picture of it. And so Jesus, Jesus is sending his man right there. And I want to read this from Luke. I'll just read it myself. Chapter 10. Jesus sent out the 70 disciples on a little mission trip, a little short mission trip. I really don't know how long it was. A, few, a matter of days or weeks, I would think. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. That's Christ's church that he's building, and he's sending forth people. I know the church wasn't technically established yet, but they were going forth in the name of Jesus, and devils were subject unto them. How? Through his name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He watched that fall. That was a mighty fall. He actually saw it. He was there. He's the one that cast him out and watched him fall. So this is the Satan, this is the devil that's walking about the earth, seeking whom he may devour as a roaring lion. And we're told to resist, resist him steadfastly in the faith, in the name of Jesus Christ. I, he says, behold, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, is Jesus a liar or is he telling the truth? This is what he said. doesn't mean you won't get a cold. Doesn't mean you won't stub your toe. Doesn't mean you won't break your arm playing football or whatever. He's talking about spiritual things. I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So the most frail, the most outnumbered, whatever it may be, the weakest, the oldest, the sickest, the, the newest convert, whatever it may be, uh, he's giving us power by the Holy Ghost to overcome these attacks of Satan, the devil himself, legions of hell, spiritual darkness and principalities and false doctrines and deceptions and schemes and plans of the devil. Uh, he's giving us power over that. And we, he expects us to walk in that. And I think he expects this, and a lot of times, most of the times the church is here. Most of the time I'm here. And he expects me to walk like in that power of the Lord. Y'all turn with me in a few chapters back in Acts chapter 13. Now this is Peter. No, I'm sorry. This is Paul and Barnabas on the island of Paphos. Paphos was a little tiny island off the coast of Cyprus. Okay, so he's preaching there. And let's, let's read Acts 13, 8 through 12. But Elymas... The sorcerer, so we know this right off this man we're talking about right here is a sorcerer. He's of the demonic influence. Not a Christian, but not only is he not Christian, he's given in over to these false demonic spirits, okay? For so his name is his name by interpretation. Elymas, the sorcerer, withstood them. And what was he seeking to do? He's of the devil. He withstood Paul and Barnabas seeking to turn away the deputy of the city from the faith. He's got one thing in mind, the sorcerer. Everything was fine, but here comes Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel, and this deputy is beginning to believe or believing the gospel. And this demonic sorcerer, Elymas, he withstood Paul and Barnabas because he wanted, didn't want this man to believe. He knew what he was doing. We're fighting against principalities and powers, okay? And he's, they were seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Look what Paul says. He goes, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm not equipped for this. I'm not prepared for this. I didn't expect a sorcerer. I didn't even know he was a sorcerer. And we, were, we had lunch together for the last two days, and now, now look at this. And the deputy was just starting to believe, man, what am I going to do? Then Paul who also is called Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, hallelujah, 
set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to perverse the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a, and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. That's the gates of hell not prevailing. That is a prime example. And this Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Lord and the same Holy Ghost and the same devil, all in play. Same frail human beings, the same church of Jesus Christ, same, saved by the same blood of Jesus that was shed and by the same grace. And he's called us, and until he calls us out of here, he's called us out into the world. He's called me out into the world. And, and we see such a, a victory, amen? Paul on Mars Hill was not sent by the Lord to try to get a viewpoint across. Again, I think this is where a lot of modern-day evangelism is. We want to hear both sides. Okay, the Muslim, and, the, and then I'm a Christian, and we'll, we'll see what we can agree on and the things where... And, and it's, it's like trying to get a viewpoint across, trying to con persuade people to your view and that's not what Paul was sent to do, nor is it what we're sent to do. He's sent to Mars Hill, this capital of idolatry, to storm the gates of hell. That's what he was called to do. We're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. I'm not a facilitator. You know, I remember uh, years I've been doing prison, most of my saved life, prison ministry, and so many of y'all, and Dee is gone, and, and so many of y'all have done prison work. I know Margaret and Rental and, and others have done so much prison ministry. And I remember at one, one point in the past when I was ministering in the prison and then the, the things changed and the chaplain changed and the, the whole attitude of the prison changed and they just wanted the outsiders like us, pastors, to come in and facilitate. One of the inmates is going to teach the other inmates. I'm not opposed to uh, a Christian inmate teaching another inmate. But I'm not called to be a facilitator to just say, well, what do you think, Joe? You know, well, I think this, this, and this, and I don't believe all that stuff. And what do you, okay, fine, everybody's got their opinion. What do you think, you know, Bob? And that's not what we're called to do. We're not trying to get across a viewpoint. We're called to storm the gates of hell with the gospel by the, by the blood of Jesus and, and uh and men would be born again by the Spirit of the living God. Amen? And so when Paul was with this sorcerer, he said, you're a child of the devil. You're an enemy of all unrighteousness. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you're going to be blind for a season. I don't know. This man could have later gotten saved. I know he wasn't saved at the time. I know he wasn't going to get saved if you left him alone as he was. Okay? And so he might have got saved later, but we're all told the deputy, when he saw that interaction and the power of the Lord, it was greater than the power of the devil in this sorcerer, he believed. The deputy, when he saw that take place, believed the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was Lord, that he had all authority and power, and believed the doctrine of the Lord. Amen? And that's what the Bible tells us. The gates of hell did not prevail against Christ's church at that time, nor will it they ever prevail against the Lord's church. I just want to bring this to, our, to home, so to speak, to ourselves. I think too often we as God's people live as though we're the underdog. I think because we look around and we see the world's scary out there, the world's dark out there, and it is. The world's bad and it's getting worse out there. It is. It's going to get worse until it gets better. Amen? It's not going to plateau off. It's going to get worse until it gets better. It's going to get worse until the church is raptured out of here, and then it's going to get worse for seven years. And it's going to get the worst it's ever been. The world is, and the condition of the world. And the Lord's still going to be saving people. Isn't that something? He's still going to be, even in the tribulation period. We read about people that are going to be saved during the tribulation. A nation's going to be born in a day. The surviving Israel is going to call upon the Lord. They're going to look upon him whom they pierced at the second coming. They're going to, it's all going to come to him. And they're going to cry out to him and say, we crucified our Savior. He's coming back for us. Save us. And he's going to save them. 
not just from the enemy, but forever. He's going to save them. But the point is that we live sometimes as though we're the underdog, as though we're fighting a losing battle, as though we're powerless against such an enemy as the devil in this world, godless system and so forth that's around us. So we live as though we're feeble and we couldn't possibly fight against the devil and men that are aligned with the devil because it is overwhelming in a sense when we look at it but we're not to look at it we see it and recognize it and know it yep that's just what the bible says it's going to be like that's how we see it and recognize it and know it and paul was immediately able to look at this elimus and say you're a child of the devil bam there was no i wonder if i don't want to hurt his feelings what if i'm wrong about this he he knew who what he was about and he knew it wasn't of the lord he was seeking to withstand them, uh, them and keep a man from coming to Christ. But the, the point is, we think sometimes that we're the underdog. And if we believe that, y'all, we believe the lie. If we believe that we're powerless, what can we do? Now, if I was just lost, let's say I was lost and politically like a conservative, okay? There are lost people that are not Christians that believe in patriotism and, you know, hard work and, you know, good physical government and so forth. And, and a certain type of morality, they have no power against what's going on today. They don't see it, that this is a spiritual battle. And it's like to, to them a tidal wave. It's like I'm just on a little uh, a raft, like something they make on Gilligan's Island trying to get off the island. I'm on this tiny little raft, and here comes a tsunami. I'm powerless against that. Well, they are powerless against that, but we're not. Even though we're outnumbered, we're not. Because we're part of Christ's church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. In fact, I'm to turn and head into that tsunami with the Lord with me. Amen? The Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. And that's what was happening with Paul and Silas and Peter and others. They were going out in the Lord's name. And our brothers and sisters through the ages that have gone out to take the gospel like Hudson Taylor to China or or others, uh, William Carey to India and different places like this. And though it may appear like we're feeble and powerless, we're not. This is where faith comes in, right? This is where faith comes in. And the just are to live by faith. We sing that song. I, I, it gets me every time. I'll, I'll confess. I've made you too small in my eyes. Oh, Lord, forgive me, right? Forgive me. I can just stop right there. I've taken this great God who is still great, but in my mind, in my eyes, in the way I live my life, I made him that big. Because I'm afraid of my own shadow sometimes. I want to preach the gospel there. They're going to reject. They're going to ridicule. They're going to mock. I might lose my job. might lose my promotion. Sure, you have to have wisdom. But, we, but there comes a point, it's like, what are we waiting for? There comes a point, it's like, we just think things are going to get better and be more conducive to Christianity one day at the workplace? They're not. They're not going to get more conducive to Christianity at the workplace. Obey the Lord, what he's telling you to do. I'm not telling you to go try to get fired. I'm telling you to obey the Lord, whatever he leads you to do. I've made you too small in my eyes, Lord. Forgive me for that. And I know in ourselves we're certainly no match for the devil, but we're not in ourselves. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Individual believers and the church collectively, greater is he. If you're the only believer, then you're greater because that's the church in that location, wherever you are. Or if you have a big church and a wonderful church family and, uh, like we have here, we, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And I want you to read this in, uh, in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let's read verses 12 through 14. And just while you're turning there, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Wow, I've, I've overcome the world. Everything's about the Lord. Everything's about the Lord. Be of good cheer. Why should I be of good cheer? You should be of good cheer because I've overcome the world, the Lord says. Therefore, you should be of good cheer. Because you belong to me. You're filled with my spirit. I've got you in my hands. I've got you saved and safe and set apart 
and your house is built upon a rock, you should be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Hallelujah. Look at what he says in 1 John 2. John, the, the apostle, writing this. I run into you little children. I'm going to explain this real quick. I think I have before, and many of you probably know it. He's not speaking just in this passage about little children physically, and he talks about young men and older men. When the, the, every place I've studied, it says he's speaking of people in different uh, levels of maturity in their walk with Christ, like a new believer, a novice, you know, or somebody that's more mature. He's not just speaking about little children necessarily or adults or fathers. He's speaking about people, different places in their walk with Christ, different levels of maturity. So I believe that is the case. I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young, young men because you have what? Overcome the wicked one. These are people. Individual people, young men, this would be like an athlete. This would be somebody that's strong in the faith and walking with the Lord that are like at the top of their game, so to speak. I run unto you little children because you have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. A couple of times there he talks about the individual believer. We don't even know their names that they've overcome the wicked one. Amen. Overcome means to conquer, to prevail, to get the victory. Amen. We have it because of our standing in Christ, the source of all of this, and we can't lose sight of it. So simple. The simple things are always the best things. Amen. It's so simple that the source and the power and the authority of it all is Christ. He's building his church on that rock. He is both the rock, the foundation, and the builder. And we enter into this thing by the rock. I guess you would say that Peter professed, not Peter, but that profession of faith. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen. And we enter into it by faith. But the whole source and an ability to overcome is our standing in Christ. That victory over sin, that victory over the devil, the victory over the grave. It's all through Jesus Christ. It's not in name only. We saw it with the seven sons of Sceva, but in a reality. Walking with the Lord. Amen. And it's for us, and I'll bring this to a close. For us, it's a matter of faith. It comes down to a matter of faith. Do we believe the Lord? Do I believe his promises? Do I believe his words? For example, when he says, I'm going to build my church upon the rock, and the gates of hell are not going to overcome it. Do I believe that? Do I believe that that, that is a promise? Not only are the gates of hell not going to overcome the Lord's church, the Lord's church is going to overcome ultimately the gates of hell. You have to remember the Lord's letting things play out in a certain way. He has a calendar. He has a time. He, uh, he's set the bounds for individual lives. He's set a bounds for the time limit of the earth the way it is now before it's refined and refashioned. He's letting things play out, but in the midst of it, uh, people's eternities hang in the balance in that time frame. From Adam and Eve, say, you know, till now and wherever the Lord, you know, at the end of the tribulation, there comes a time where there'll be a time will be no more and everything will be this eternity of eternities. And let him that's wicked is going to be wicked still and him that's just is going to be just still. There's no more back and forth going from lost to saved or saved to backslidden or something like that. Once that happens, it's set. But that hasn't happened yet. And it's the mercy of God. He's long-suffering, uh, long not willing that any perish, but he wants all men to come to repentance. And so the Lord is letting things play out, and he wants, in the meantime, people's eternities that he created, that he loves, their eternity is hanging in the balance. And the only thing that can save them is Christ, and the only way they're going to come to Christ is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who's preaching the gospel of Christ? What well, ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a pecan tree that preaches to your neighbor. It's going to be you that tells your neighbor about the Lord. You are. You don't have to go halfway around the world. You can. But we at least go ne next door. Amen. Knock on the door. Um, I want to close with a few thoughts here. 
those seven churches, and I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there, but in Jesus Christ addresses seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Seven churches in Asia, right? Uh, there's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Of the seven churches, he rebukes five pretty sternly. There's two that he does not rebuke, but they're all his church, his churches. He never accuses them of not being his churches. He addresses them as his churches. Some had horrible sins, and two he didn't rebuke. But in all seven churches, he spoke to them. I'm going to read the verses here. To all seven churches, he spoke to them about their need to overcome. All seven, he spoke to them about overcoming. This is not necessarily like, now I need to go and earn my salvation and I need to do it. I'm already saved. But the believers in this life, he wants us to overcome. He wants the believers in this life to overcome in his name. Specifically to overcome the kingdoms of darkness. The things of Satan, like this Elymas, like Paul on Mars Hill. And by the way, on Mars Hill, when he got to that last part we read in verse 31, that when he preached to them uh, the resurrection that some mocked. And they said, oh, goodness, what's this, this, this babbler? Here he goes again talking about Jesus rising from the dead. And they left and they laughed and they walked off. It says, and some th- said, well, think about this more later. That's actually not the correct answer either. <laughs> two, two wrong answers in response to the gospel. It says, however, some believed and they clung to Paul. So guess what? The gates of hell did not prevail, did they? Because the Lord wanted to save who would believe out of that group. He wanted to save them all. But he did save whoever believed. And all they had to do was believe. And they came, he, he came out with some spoils with him. He came out with people hanging on to his coattails and wrapped around his leg, basically, saying, take us with you, Paul. Teach us some more about Jesus. Amen? He rescued them. The Lord used him to rescue them. I want to read about overcoming just real quickly. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life. To him that overcometh, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Here's another church. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. Well, it looks like the devil's winning, but he's not. You may be tried. You're tested. And you shall have tribulation ten days. This was a specific church. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in a stone, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto him, uh, to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even... I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. It's important to the Lord that his people overcome. He won the victory. What is he asking us to do? Walk it out. Walk in the victory. You're not an underdog. If you were by yourself, you're an underdog, but you wouldn't even realize it. Okay? But we're saved, and we, we look like we're overwhelmed, especially in the day in which we live. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, right? Deceiving and being deceived. The love of many is waxing cold. People are unfaithful and rebellious. And just like the Bible says, and here we are, trying to serve God in the midst of all that. But it's right. Here we are. This is where he's put us. He put Paul in Mars Hill in the midst of a city given wholly to idolatry. And he says, overcome. Overcome. 
in my victory. And he's telling us right now today, overcome. Amen? Overcome. And what is, what is, he is, who is he that overcometh but the Lord Jesus Christ? He that walks by faith. So we're going to close with this first. If you're still in 1 John, D, you can come on up if you would. And y'all, when the altars are open, I pray we would just come. I pray we just worship the Lord and meet with the Lord. 1 John 5, 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. That means they're not burdensome. I'm speaking of believers here. For whatsoever is born of God, what does it say? Overcometh the world. Whatever is born of God. Are you born of God? You born again? Then whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? And he is the Lord and Savior. And he is our Lord and Savior. He's building his church. You're part of it. If you're born again, if you're not, you're part of his church. You don't, you're, you're not sure. You can give your life to Christ this morning and know that your sins are forgiven. You're part of this kingdom, part of this church which cannot be overcome. If, if you're the only believer on the planet, you're not going to be overcome. If it's you against everybody, you're not going to be overcome. Those three witnesses in the book of Revelation, they come on the scene about halfway through uh, preaching the gospel, and they're tormenting the world. People wanted to kill them, and they couldn't kill them. They couldn't kill them until the Lord basically said, okay, now it's time, and he let them be slain in the streets. And as they watched on the fourth day, they watched them rise up again and go up to heaven alive. They watched him with their own eyeballs go straight up to heaven. Amen. Gates of hell did not prevail. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and walk with the Lord. Y'all stand with me this morning. We're part of this kingdom. It's not anything to boast about. It's something to be humbled by. It's also something to take great courage in and heart in. We need that. We need to be encouraged. Amen. We need to be strengthened. We also need, like I said, a Holy Ghost dose of that anger at sin. Men giving themselves over and their souls over to nothing that in the end is going to let them down. When Christ wants to rescue them and can rescue them, they're within a heartbeat of hell and the Lord could use us in their lives. He that overcometh, Jesus said in the end of Revelation 21.7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Amen. Father, we come before you. I pray you would help us to walk in that overcoming faith. It's your victory. It's the victory that you've won. You said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God, I pray you'd help us to walk in that overcoming faith and victory, Lord. It's nothing to boast about. All we can boast about is in the victory of Jesus that's freely been given us by your grace. But we can boast in that. And we ought to walk in that, God. I pray these people right here in this church and these right at the altar, God, that we wouldn't leave the house of God the way we came. We would come into your presence and there would be something real and, and su substantial that takes place in our faith and in our lives that we're changed we're changed the way you want to change us in response to this word, God. And we would be different and we would be bolder in Christ, Lord. And our hearts would weep for the lost, God. In Jesus' name.